0: Over the years, we have received thousands of great questions concerning not just Bible prophecy, but many topics in Scripture. And I will answer many of those questions on this edition of End of the Age. Good afternoon everybody, Dave Robbins with End Time Ministries and thank you so much for joining me on this edition of End of the Age. We've got so many great questions over the years and I want to take time periodically just to answer so many of them. They come from all over the world on our social networking sites and we get emails and letters and cards And I want to make sure that we go through some of these questions on the air for everybody to glean from because there are people everywhere that are establishing Bible schools overseas and people studying prophecy and just the Bible in general. And so I wanted to answer some of these just to kind of help you out as we go along because I don't want to, you know, just say, well, let's make a paper airplane out of this and we're done. Uh, What good does that do but the person that I write back to? So want to make sure that everybody can glean from these Q&A. So, let's get through as many as we can today and uh hopefully you can learn something. The first question is Revelation chapter 3 verses 10 and 11. The the John writes to the a letter to the church of Philadelphia. Now this is 2000 years ago. Uh because you understand that the um the segmentation of the book of Revelation, John, right? In Revelation 119, John was told, write the things which you have seen, the things which are to seven churches on the earth 2,000 years ago, and then things which will be hereafter. Well, the, church of, the letter to the Church of Philadelphia is in chapter 3, which was during the things that were on the earth at the time of John's era 2,000 years ago. So the question that the writer writes is, on your shows, you mentioned that the letters to the seven churches goes under the things that are. And here's the verse. It says, because you have kept my commandment to endure trials, I will keep you safe in the time of trial, which is going to come for the whole world to test the people of the world. The writer says, to me, this sounds futuristic and pertains to to a rapture before the great tribulation. In other words, they're saying that they believe as a result of Revelation 3.10, that that proves a pre-tribulation rapture. Well, there's a lot of people that use Revelation 3.10 to cite as a proof of a pre-tribulation rapture. And the passage says this. I wanna make sure we get it from the King James Version. It says, because thou hast kept the word of my patience I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world and try them that dwell upon the earth. Now some do contend that a, 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 a as God protected the church of Philadelphia from temptations that would come upon the world, that he would also protect us from the great tribulation which is in the very near future. And this passage was simply a message to the Philadelphian church that John over had um, oversaw after he was released from exile on the Isle of Patmos. There's a similar message that was written to the church in Smyrna, one chapter back in Revelation 2, verse 10. The Bible says, "...the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days." So, does this mean that the Great Tribulation will only last 10 days? Well, of course not. Again, this is a message uh, to one of the seven churches of Asia Minor, which John was the overseer of after his relief release from exile. So, once you understand this and the segmentation of the book of Revelation, then you can see why Revelation 3.10 is not a proof for a pre-tribulation rapture. Because the prophetic portion of the book of Revelation doesn't begin until Revelation chapter four, verse one, where it says, hey, John, come up hither and let me show you these things which will be here after. So Revelation four, one through Revelation 22 is the prophetic portion of the book of Revelation. So it really helps you when you're trying to figure these things out. The next question is, The writer said, it is my understanding that the generation that saw Israel return and form as a nation back in 1948, that that this generation would be the one that saw the second coming of Jesus Christ according to Matthew 24. Is this true? Well, so in Matthew 24 verse 32, Jesus said, now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, then you know that summer is nigh. So likewise, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. So now Jesus in verse 31, just one verse prior to this, he was talking about his second coming where the angels would be sent with the sound of a great trumpet to gather his elect from the earth. This is what he's referring to. And then he immediately launched into this parable. He said, hey, when you see a fig tree budding in the springtime, then you can know summer is nigh. And in another passage of one of the gospels, Jesus said, when you see the fig tree or all the trees budding then you can know that it's almost summer so it's it's really pretty simple when you when you see the trees budding in the springtime then you can know hey it's almost summertime right I mean we all know that when you walk outside in the springtime and you see the trees starting to get little buds on them then you can say you know what we got a little bit of spring left and then here comes summer well likewise Jesus was saying, when you see all these things, then know that it is near, even at the door, speaking of his second coming. And then he said that this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. So when Jesus said, when you see these things, what things is he talking about? Well, if you look up in the chapter, this is the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is sitting with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And they ask him the question, hey, what's going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of this age? So the rest of the chapter is him talking to you and me, those that would live at the time of the end of the age, not to his disciples, because he's talking about his second coming, and yet he's sitting there talking to them. He's not talking about his first coming. He's talking about our time, when we will see the return of Jesus Christ. So Jesus said, hey... Uh, Well, so he talks about many things in the chapter that have been happening for thousands of years. Not something that you could nail down and say, hey, when you see this thing, then you can know this generation shall not pass. He talks about many things, but there are two specific things that he's talking about. And we're going to mention those coming up in the next segment here. So you don't want to miss it.
1: Does the book of Revelation frighten you? Do its symbols confuse you? For centuries, the book of Revelation has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. In Revelation, The Unveiling of Jesus Christ, Volume 1, Irvin Baxter unlocks the mystery of the book of Revelation with in-depth analysis and commentary like you've never heard before. This 10-part definitive DVD series and 268-page comprehensive commentary book covers the first 12 chapters of the book of Revelation. Featuring on-location photography, classic artwork, and symbolic illustrations, you'll walk away with complete understanding and peace about the events happening during the final years on earth. These comprehensive study tools, available for $299, will deepen your biblical understanding as you dig into the original intent of the book, answering the mysterious prophecies and symbols of the book of revelation don't miss this special offer call now 1-800-END-TIME or go to endtime.com to order call or go online now to get this comprehensive bible study
2: we've seen bible prophecy fulfilled like never before
0: Now, in, we're answering the question, when will when Jesus said, when, uh, when you see these things occur, then this generation would not pass until all these things would be fulfilled and the second coming of Jesus Christ would take place. But in this chapter, Jesus said, hey, you're going to hear of wars, rumors of wars. Now, this is just prior to his second coming. You're going to hear of wars, rumors of wars. A nation is going to rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. And there are going to be famines. There's going to be pestilences or pandemics, plagues. And earthquakes in driver's places. But these have happened for thousands of years. I mean, think about it. Earthquakes, pestilences, uh, wars and rumors of wars. That's happened many, many times throughout history. But if you look at the events in Matthew 24... That are one-time events that can really help us interpret this prophecy. When you see these events, Jesus said, you will see two specific things. The abomination of desolation, which was when the Antichrist will stand in a rebuilt Jewish temple proclaiming to be God. And when, when that happens, the Jews in Judea will have to flee. Those are going to be one-time events And Jesus said that when you see these things, these two events happen, then you can know that that is the generation that will not pass until everything is fulfilled. So it's very key that we understand here that it was not the formation of Israel in 1948 that started this generation. A lot of people are trying to figure out, well, maybe it's 70, 80 years. How do you figure a generation? Is it 40 years? No, no. You, it, that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for when Jesus said, when you see these things, the abomination of desolation, and when that happens, the Jews in Judea would have to flee. When you see those two things happen, then you could know that this generation will not pass until all these things be fulfilled. Okay? So it's a great question, and a lot of people have that question. But we got to make sure we get the interpretation right. The next question is, what are the stars and the candlesticks in Revelation chapter one? So in Revelation one, in ver- starting with verse 10, John said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's now, now, remember, he's out on the Isle of Patmos. So put yourself in John's shoes here. He's having a prayer meeting. And he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Now, he's having a vision here. He's in the spirit realm. I heard a great voice behind me as of a trumpet saying, John, I am Alpha Omega. I'm the first, the last. And what thou seest, I want you to write in a book, in this book that I'm giving you, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, Ephesus, uh, Smyrna, Pergamos, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then it says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. He's talking about Jesus clothed with a, a garment down to his foot and girt about the papst with a golden girdle. And his head and his hairs were as white like wool and white as snow. And his eyes were as the flame of fire. And his feet were like unto fine brass as if they had burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun that shineth in his strength. And John said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. He was going to worship him. He laid his right hand on me and said unto me, fear not, John, I'm the first and I'm the last. I am he that liveth and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. So this is. there's no doubt he's talking about Jesus here. Jesus is revealing himself to John. And he says, and I have the keys of hell and death. And then in 19, it says, write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, the things which shall be hereafter. And then here's the key verse. Revelation 1, 20, it concludes by Jesus revealing to John the identity of the seven stars and the seven candlesticks. So the mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest, this is Revelation one twenty. the mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches that are in Asia that he's writing to. So Jesus said, hey, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The original Greek uh, meaning for stars here is messenger or pastor. In biblical times, people used the stars to navigate their, uh, to give them direction when they traveled on land or, or even by sea. And the stars led them to their destination. Well, in that same way, God gives us pastors to lead and direct our churches, right? He said, I will choose you pastors after mine own heart that will feed you with knowledge and understanding and be led by the Spirit of the Lord and direct the churches. They're going to be the overseer or the shepherd or the pastor of the church. Well, the seven stars in the hand of Jesus Christ were the messengers or the pastors of the seven churches in Asia. And then next, John is told that the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, they are the seven churches. John said, uh, you remember, John said to the church, you are the light of the world. A a God-ordained church is spoken of as a candlestick that shows the light of God to the world. And so that's our role. The Bible says, don't put your candle under a bushel. No, take the bushel off and let the world see your light. The church is the light to the world. Politics is Satan's method of ruling the world, but the church is God's method of ruling the world. If you're a Christian, you're part of the body of Christ. You're part of the bride of Christ. You are an ambassador for Jesus Christ in this earth. Letting your light shine among men that, may, that they might see Christ through you. And this is how we are building the church. We're expanding the kingdom of God around the world. And I'm so thankful to be a part of that, aren't you? The light unto the world. This is the mystery of the stars and the candlesticks in Revelation chapter one. The next question is, Hey, an individual is a friend of mine. He wrote to me and he said, Hey, Dave, I'm trying to understand a, a difference here in the scriptures. One beast was slain and given to the burning flame and the other cast alive into the lake of fire. This is back in Daniel 7 and in Revelation 19. So are these talking about the Antichrist? And they seem to be opposing statements with one being dead and the other being alive. One's destroyed, one's cast alive into the lake of fire. Well, so there are, one of the things you can bank on is that the word of God never contradicts itself. Sometimes when you're looking at these prophecies, you have to say, well, what, do, what is this prophecy not saying? Because I know it doesn't contradict itself. And so you've got to look at it like that sometimes. And that before you get it all figured out and Normally, when you go and get all of the verses pertaining to one topic, that will help you figure it out because there can be one verse way back over in the Old Testament that you haven't read yet, and that's the one with the key that unlocks the door. And so this is what you have to do here. There are many prophecies that teach the Antichrist or the beast will be destroyed by Jesus Christ at the time of his second coming. Um, Daniel 7.11. Daniel 7.11 uh, says, I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, the Antichrist, I beheld even till the beast or the Antichrist was slain, his body destroyed, and was given to the burning flame. And Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. It says and then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming talking about the antichrist here. And then Revelation 19:20 And and the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worship his name and these both were both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So in Daniel 7.11, and it says that he was destroyed and given to the burning flame. In Revelation 19.20, it says that he was cast alive into the burning flame. So Daniel 7.11 and Revelation 19.20, they do appear to contradict each other until you understand one factor. This is very important. And this is, this is simply figuring out the interpretations of these prophecies 101. You've got to look at every little nuance of everything to try to get the big picture. So here's the answer. A person's mortal body can be destroyed, but their immortal body can be cast alive into the lake of fire. Think about this. An individual who goes to hell. They will be given a body that can be tormented for eternity. Not consumed. If you were to cast a a mortal body there, it would be consumed immediately. But they're going to be given a body that cannot be consumed. The Bible says that the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. So they're not consumed as a mortal. So I believe this is what these two scriptures are referring to. The beast or the Antichrist mortal body will be destroyed, like Daniel 7.11, but will be cast alive as an immortal being into the lake of fire. It's the same thing that will happen to any other sinner that was perhaps killed in a car wreck and their body was disfigured or somebody that was... um, Murdered, or or maybe hit hit by a train, or or dro- dove on a grenade in uh, uh, one of the wartime scenarios, and their body was just blown to pieces. Their body was destroyed. But if, if they were a sinner, then they would spend eternity somewhere in a body that could not be burned up. The Bible says, "The worm dieth not; the fire is not quenched." You know. Now, hopefully, I'm n- nobody. I'm Referring to has been that way. I'm just saying this is what it is. Daniel 7.11 says that his body's going to be, um, that he will be destroyed and cast into the, to the burning flame. Revelation 19.20, which is, is the account of the same thing, says that he will be cast alive into the, to the, to the uh, lake of fire. So it's the same thing. A body can be destroyed, but yet have an immortal body going into um, eternal damnation. And that's what the scriptures tell us. The next question, what are the scriptures that prove the great tribulation lasts only three and a half years? Sure, so the, there are many people that believe because of Daniel's 70th week, that that is a time of great tribulation and that, that the church is caught out before that and that that's when the great tribulation begins because um, they say that it's the, in 2 Thessalonians chapter two, that that is the Antichrist. Some say it's the Antichrist or the, um, I'm sorry, it's the church or the Holy Spirit that has to be removed from the earth before the Antichrist can come on the scene. And when he does, it's gonna be a seven year tribulation period. And so they've taught, or and, and some have even taught like a mid-tribulation rapture. However, this position, it's impossible since these, uh, they assume that the tribulation lasts for seven years. And yet there is not one scripture in the entire Bible, not one, that describes a seven-year tribulation. Again, there is a final seven-year period. Absolutely, totally agree. Many, Most prophecy teachers would agree that that's Daniel's 70th week. And that's just ahead of us now. And we know that there's going to be an Israeli-Palestinian peace agreement that starts that final seven years. But there are no scriptures in the Bible that says that's a great tribulation, period. Every description of the tribulation in the Bible, the great tribulation that Jesus talked about. Back in uh, Matthew 24, 15 through 21, he said, hey, when you see the abomination of desolation occur, let them which be in Judea flee. And verse 21, because he says... Then is going to be great tribulation, such as never been before on the earth, nor will there ever be again. There, he said there's a specific time of great tribulation. And so there are several scriptures that tell us that it only lasts three and one half years. Number one, Daniel 7.25. Number two, Daniel 12.1-7. Number three, Revelation 11, three through 12, when it talks about the time of the uh, ministry of the two witnesses, it's three and a half years. Revelation 12, six. Revelation 12, seven through 12. Revelation 12, 13 through 17. And Revelation 13, five through seven. All of these prove conclusively that there's only three and one half years of great tribulation, which, of course, I'm very thankful for. I don't want a seven-year tribulation.
3: Major Internet companies are silencing and censoring Christian voices online. These companies are trying to control what you see and hear. Almost 200 videos of ours have been marked as restricted online right now. That's why we launched End of the Age Plus, a platform where the truth is we will not censor our message to comply with what the world deems as politically correct. Go to watch.endtime.com right now or search into the H Plus in the App Store or Google Play.
4: If your station only carries the first 30 minutes of End of the Age, go to endtime.com and click the watch button to continue today's broadcast. You can also finish up later by clicking the archive button.
0: In this segment, we're continuing on with our question and answer uh, teaching here and I had just given you many scriptures that prove the great Tribulation is only three and one half years. Again really quick Daniel 7:25, Daniel 12 1 through7, Revelation 113 3 through 12, Revelation 12:6, 12, Revelation 12 7 through 12, Revelation 12 uh, 13 through 17. And Revelation 13, 5 through 7. You know, and the misunderstanding about a seven-year tribulation comes from Daniel 9, 27, which speaks of a covenant that will be confirmed by the Antichrist for a seven-year period. And this verse teaches that the abomination of desolation will occur halfway through that final seven-year period. Jesus said the abomination of desolation would mark the beginning of the great tribulation. That's found in Matthew twenty-four, fifteen through twenty-one. So from this we know conclusively that the great tribulation only lasts for three and one-half years. Next question: Are the messages to the seven churches prophetic? Do they prophesy church? The church ages. Or are they simply for John's era 2,000 years ago? You know, honestly, it has been commonly taught that they are prophetic. And that each church mentioned is a passage that represents a church age, each one. But you have to remember, it isn't until Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, that John is told, Hey, John, come up hither, and I will show you things which will be here after. So Revelation 4-1, that starts the prophetic segment of the book of Revelation, not chapters 1, 2, and 3. So Jesus finishes talking about the, the seven churches in the last verse of chapter 3. So the prophecies, again, they don't begin until chapter, verse 1 of chapter 4. And you will notice that throughout the Bible, that most of the books of the New Testament were addressed to specific churches. Uh, Galatia, the the Galatians, the book of Galatians. uh, Corinth, the book of Corinthians. uh, The Romans was written to the church in Rome. Uh, However, if you will study the messages to the seven churches in chapters two and three of the book of Revelation, they could be applied to many of our churches today because we have churches that are, uh, you know, becoming... Um, you know, lackadaisical and just, you know, have lost their first love. They need to get back to that. For some churches, these messages, the message to the Ephesian church could apply as well, though, right? I mean, many have lost their first love and, and, and have become backslidden a little bit and need to get back to their first love. Others fit the description of the, perhaps what, maybe the church of Sardis, having the, na- um, the name that thou livest but are dead. I mean, at one time they taught uh, hellfire and brimstone and taught doctrine and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And then they backed off of that. There's no more spirit there and they're just dead. You go in there and there's there's nothing going on. And it's like, man, no spirit. So they are called Christians, but they are lifeless, lacking the power of God in their lives. Perhaps the most disturbing message was the one given to the Laodicean church. You remember, Jesus said, "I know thy works that thou art neither hot nor cold, but I would I would that you were hot or cold." So then because you're not you just you're just lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Now that's dangerous. A church cannot afford to be lukewarm at all in the end times especially. So what about this seven church ages? I mean, l- let me give you a brief explanation of how the belief that the seven churches uh, represent the seven ages came about. In the, If you'll look in the back of a good old Thompson Chain Bible, uh, a Thompson Chain reference Bible is a very, very good Bible for all the references and things in the back. It's, it's what I use most of the time. It's what my father-in-law, Irvin Baxter, used for pretty much his entire life, the Thompson Chain Reference Bible. There's a chart that lists all of the churches in Revelation 1-11, and it equates the conditions existing in the Ephesian church to the late apostolic age, the conditions in the Smyrna church to the early centuries of persecution, the conditions of the church of Pergamos to the age of Constantine and the temple prosperity, and that it caused by marriage of church and state. It equates the church of Thyatira with the age of papal apostasy, and, papal apostasy and the dark ages. And the church of Sardis with the church of the middle ages. The Philadelphia church with the church of the reformation in, the, in Martin Luther's day back in uh, 1517. And finally the Laodicean church is believed to be the church of the last days. However, there is absolutely zero proof for these beliefs. Those were simply seven messages to the seven churches of John's day, 2,000 years ago. And all those messages, they can be preached in our churches today. All And, you know, obviously, this is not a heaven or hell issue. But it is important for us to understand the chronology and order of the book of Revelation in order to understand the book of Revelation as a whole. We wanna understand the segmentation, the skeletal structure of the book of Revelation, the four accounts of the second coming of Jesus Christ, the parenthetical chapters that are in the book of Revelation. That's that's Revelation 101, really, everybody. You've got to understand those things because you're gonna be really confused at the book of Revelation If you don't understand them, that's why we go over them a lot on our radio and television shows and in end time magazine, because we want you to understand how to understand the book of Revelation. I've had many pastors that tell me, hey, Dave, I won't even touch the book of Revelation from chapter four on. Because I simply don't understand the beast and all the symbolism and all the different things that are going on. But once you understand the structural elements and the segmentation and everything, it really becomes pretty easy. And it's really a fabulous prophecy book, helping us navigate the waters just ahead. Okay, next question. What is the difference in God's judgment and his wrath, especially the day of God's wrath? Well, so judgment really is the process to determine whether one is guilty or not. I mean, imagine going before a judge. He's, he's, that's why he's called a judge. He's going to give a judgment. He's got to make a judgment here. Is this person guilty or are they innocent? In uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10, the Bible says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in their body, According to that he hath done, whether it whether it be good or bad. If one is um, acquitted and found not guilty, then they're set free, right? This is at the, but they the same judgment seat. But if one is found guilty, then they are sentenced and judgment is executed or carried out. Maybe they go to prison or they go community service, whatever. If they're found guilty. There's a judgment for that. So it's it's a judgment seat. A judge sits in a judgment seat. Uh, Biblestudytools.com gave a great explanation about the the wrath of God that occurs throughout the Bible. Uh, the, it says that the Merriam Webster dictionary defines wrath as strong, vengeful anger or indignation, retributory punishment, for an offense or a crime, a divine chastisement. So if you go by this definition alone, then you see that while wrath can be, it can have a tone of vengeance or revenge, it can also be justified depending on the circumstance. For instance, if a person um, could commit a, a heinous crime and face the wrath of the courts, a mass murder or something like that, And then go to court, this would be completely justifiable, a punishment or the wrath that fits the crime, right? I mean, they need to be, if they're guilty, they need to be punished for that. You can't go around doing whatever you want, not get punished. So if (coughs) if we apply this idea to God's wrath, then it's possible to say that God's wrath is displayed... Never to get back at somebody, but rather to represent his justice. In other words, he is pouring out his wrath as a form of justice, not to exact revenge. So let me give you three scriptures that can give, it helps with clues in truly understanding God's wrath. The Bible says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all, un- all um, the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That's Romans one eighteen. Then the Bible says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be doled out. Romans 2.5. And then John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. But whosoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. So in all three of these verses we see mention of the wrath of God. But I want you to pay close attention um, to the fact that what the wrath of God is in response to. You'll see God is responding to godlessness, wickedness, stubbornness, unrepentant hearts and rejecting Jesus as savior so a simply a, a simpler way of putting this would be that it is god's wrath is in response to man's sin and a logical question to follow would be is this justified well the short answer yes it is god stands as the judge of all of mankind each of us will have to give an account for what we have done and how we lived in this life God gives us the freedom to make the choice in how we will live. And what remains is that whatever decision we make, we must be aware of the consequences of all those choices. I mean, in Revelation sixteen four through six, the Bible says, and the, and the third angel, this is during the vials of the wrath of God. The Bible says the third angel poured out his vial upon the earth, upon the rivers and the fountains of the waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shall be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and the prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. So they were judged, and they found they were found guilty, and God's wrath comes out upon these individuals. That's why God's wrath has never been poured out upon the church or his people. And it won't be in the future. The Bible says we're not appointed unto God's wrath. If you're born again, God's wrath will never be poured out upon you. That's why it's important to understand the great tribulation is the wrath of Satan, not the wrath of God. The wrath of God is poured out at the end of the great tribulation when the seven vials of the wrath of God are poured out Mainly on the armies that have come down against Israel to battle at the Battle of Armageddon. So there is a difference between the judgment and the wrath of God in the Bible. Very important. We need to talk about it.
4: Most of us walk around day by day blind to the prophecies being fulfilled right before us. Every news report brings a new piece. ...to the puzzle in the race towards the final seven years and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, more than ever, it is important for God's people to understand the times in which we are living. On November the 12th, 2013... Go to JerusalemProphecyCollege.com.
0: Don't you just love these Q&A segments? I mean, this is one of the most popular um, sections or popular uh, parts to our prophecy conferences that we do all over the country is on Sunday morning, we'll take a little bit of a time and we'll do Q&A and everybody can get their questions answered if, if, if I know the answer and don't claim to know everything. But these are some of the, the, the most learning times where people can learn uh, because a lot of people learn simply by asking questions, get their questions answered and it really helps to clear up things. So let's continue on. I'll get to as many of these as I can before the end of this program. Next question, who are the two witnesses? We get this question all the time. Why? Because they're going to be here in just a few short years now. And people want to know, how can we recognize them? Who are they? Uh, maybe people think there's some prophets coming back from the Old Testament. I mean, we all want to know the identity of the two witnesses. They're going to be working very closely with end time ministries in the last days. They're going to be in Israel uh, part of the time. we were We are going to be in Israel. I'm going to have them writing for end time magazine. If they want, I'll be, have them on my radio program. I'll have them on the end of the age television program. I'll have them teaching in our college in Jerusalem. You say, really, you guys believe that? Absolutely. Why not? They're going to be men of God. I'm a man of God. They're going to be brothers with me. Why not? You got to have a vision, everybody. And I know most of you do. You bought into this vision of end time ministries. There's so much happening in the end time that we are going to be involved in. And guess what? We're going to pull all of you with us. So it's going to be an exciting ride, isn't it? So some people, when we get back, let me get back to the two witnesses. I mean, that's the whole question, right? Some people have thought that they might be Moses and Elijah. Now, others have thought that they could perhaps be Enoch and Elijah. But the logic behind this belief is that, you know, Enoch never died, and, but was translated. Elijah also never died, but was caught up into heaven in a whirlwind. At Hebrews 9, 27 says, and it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So some believe since these two prophets never died, that they must return and be killed by the Antichrist. However, there is a flaw in that logic. There is no precedent for anyone returning to the earth as a mortal after two or three thousand years to preach. The two witnesses have to be mortals because the scripture says that they will die at the end of their ministry. That's in Revelation chapter 11. And they will not be Moses nor Elijah. And furthermore, but when the Bible says, it is appointed unto a man once to die, and then the judgment, it's merely making a statement of the normal pattern of life. At the time of the rapture, all people on earth who are raptured will not die. Think about it. The Bible says the dead in Christ will rise first. They're going to be changed instantaneously from mortal beings to immortal beings, and they will be caught up to meet Jesus in the air. Then the Bible says that we who are alive and remain will be caught up. The dead in Christ first than we who are alive. There are some people who would never die a physical death. It's talking about the normal circumstances of life for the human existence. But some things will be extraordinary right there at the very end, right? I mean, after they become immortal, it's necessary. It, well, I should say, is it necessary for them to come back later and die to fulfill the scripture, which says it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment? No. This is not a, a legitimate proof that they are the identity of the two witnesses. Because again, there will be people alive on the earth, Christians, that go in the rapture that don't die a physical death. Now they will have died a physical death in repentance, or I, sh- I should say a spiritual death, but they won't die a physical death. So you gotta look at, you gotta look at every aspect of these prophecies and all the scriptures to figure this stuff out. The truth of the matter is, is that these two men, the Bible calls them two prophets. They're going to be mortals and they will be presently alive. They're presently alive on the earth, we believe right now. I mean, with all the prophecies converging, um, they have to be. I mean, that's, that's the question. How do we know they're alive right now? Well, all the prophecies that are given for the end time, they're, they're converging right now. These two witnesses are on the earth right now and God is preparing them for the ministry he has ordained for them. Their powers are going to be very much like the powers of Moses and Elijah. And they will have the spirit and the power of Moses and Elijah. Just like John the Baptist. But the Bible says John came in the spirit of Elijah. But the two witnesses will not literally be Moses and Elijah. They're going to be two mortal men of God. That God has raised up and prepared For this end time hour. And I'm looking forward to meeting him. Next question. Why does Revelation 14 call the gospel of the kingdom of God the everlasting gospel? Well, in Revelation 14 6, we're introduced to the term the everlasting gospel. The scripture says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. So what is the everlasting gospel? It's a new term, right? The Apostle Paul answered this question in Galatians chapter one, verse six through seven. He said, hey, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. So we see from this scripture, the everlasting gospel is the gospel of Christ. There are not two gospels. There's only one gospel. The gospel of Christ has existed from the beginning of creation and will last forever. You say, well, how in the world is that possible? Well, in Galatians 1.8, the apostle Paul declared emphatically that there will never be any other gospel. He said, but though we or an angel from heaven preach unto you any other gospel than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Paul states, even if an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel, that he should be accursed. And from this scripture, we know the angel preaching the everlasting gospel in Revelation 14 is going to be preaching the same gospel Paul preached, right? So it's interesting, the gospel of Christ was preached in the Old Testament. Galatians 3.8, and the scripture foreseeing, the the, the, the um, it states the gospel was preached to Abraham. The Bible says, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, Hey, Abraham, in thee shall all the nations be blessed. This passage states that in Abraham's seed, a specific seed, not seeds, plural, but seed, singular, a specific individual, which is representative of Christ. It was a prophecy about the coming Messiah that all nations will be blessed with salvation. That promise has certainly been fulfilled, right? Christians, um, Christianity has become the most widely embraced religion in the entire world. And Christ was preached all the way back in Genesis 3.15, a prophecy of the coming Messiah. The Bible says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. God said to Satan, The seed of the woman would bruise his head Speaking of Jesus, destroying Satan through his death on the cross. Hebrews 2.14 states that Jesus, through his death, destroyed him that had the power of death, even even the devil. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Moses also preached Christ when he was given the plan for the tabernacle. Uh, the furniture of the tabernacle was in the shape of a cross and was an object lesson about the plan of salvation that would come through Jesus Christ. When, when entering the tabernacle, the, the first piece of furniture was the brazen altar where the blood of the sacrifice was shed. That foreshadowed repentance, death to self which is when the blood of Christ covers our sins. The second piece of furniture in the tabernacle was the laver. It's it's the laver of water where the priests were commanded to wash. And this represented baptism that washes away our sins in the New Testament plan of salvation. And then the third piece of furniture in the tabernacle was the, when he went into the holy place, was the golden candlestick where the oil of the fire combined to give light. And this represented the gift of the Holy Ghost, which would be the third step to the plan of salvation. Uh, and in the tabernacle plan, there are three elements of salvation: blood, water, and spirit. First John 5, 8. It speaks of these three elements of salvation, right? And there are three that bear witness in the earth: the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these are three, these three agree in one. The one thing these three agree in is is the born-again, um, the, the plan of salvation purchased by Jesus at Calvary. And Jesus told Nicodemus, remember, this would be John 3. Jesus told Nicodemus, you, you must be born again of the water and the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. And then, of course, the apostle Peter included these same three elements in salvation when he told people how to be saved in the book of Acts. So here you see the born again plan of salvation uh, that's given and it mirrors the plans of salvations that were given in the Old Testament. And so it's very important that we understand these things. Now, the next question we have is that where are we at on the timeline? A lot of people want to know where we're at on the end time timeline. Well, From the Old Testament prophets to the New Testament plan of salvation and all the way to Revelation 22. There is a timeline that God gave us. And right there at the very end, the Bible prophesies about a final seven year period. That would begin with the Israeli-Palestinian peace agreement that would be signed with the five specific characteristics that go along with that peace agreement. And then that would be the catalyst that would launch us into the final seven years. On this big timeline that God has given us, all the messianic prophecies for selling the first coming of Jesus Christ and everything that goes all the way to the second coming and then all the way to the great white throne of judgment and beyond into eternity, you and I are just prior to the beginning of that final seven year period. And so it lets us know with all of the prophecies converging at one time, the, the establishment of a world government, the establishment of a world religion, precursors to the mark of the beast, the upcoming World War three, the Sixth Trumpet War, Revelation 9, 13 through 21, the the talks that are on, have been ongoing for years about an Israeli-Palestinian peace agreement that would create a two-state solution and many other things, all of these prophecies, all the prophecies that have already been fulfilled, It lets us know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we truly are just prior to the beginning of that final seven-year period, which will culminate in the second coming of Jesus Christ and the Battle of Armageddon. Folks, I'm, I'm thankful to be living in this time right now when you and I will be the ones to see Jesus coming back.